Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. The whole gang again back together for another episode. Today we are going to talk about the worst financial mistakes that we individually have made. And I am not going to go first. I'm going to kick it over to Ian and let him share his worst financial mistake. Wow, that's rude. Uh, So so I'm going to start with one that's pretty common, and then I'm also going to throw out a second one that's pretty uncommon that makes me feel even dumber. Um, So so the first one that's pretty common is uh, when I turned 21, I was given an inheritance that my parents had given me, and that that part's maybe less common. But at the time, I was coming out of school. I had a decent job. And the really common part about this is that I decided to use a portion of the inheritance to buy my first like new car. And thinking back, you know, $25,000, not that big of a deal, right? It won't change my life forever, but man, I could have done way better things with $25,000 if I knew what I knew today. Um, This was before I joined the financial planning profession. It was, you know, all of that stuff. So. Uh, I still have that car. It's a great car, but but twenty five grand's a lot of money to spend at twenty two years old. So that would be my first big one. But I don't think that that's that uncommon. I think large purchases are what people go to a lot of the time when they when they receive money. It's kind of or when they get their first big job. It's kind of like oh yeah, I finally made it. So now I get to have the things. It's like ah, you didn't make it yet, kid. Your dad gave you some money and you have like an average job. Good job, <laughs> you know? So I still had a long way to go. Um, the second one, which is way more embarrassing and I don't talk about as much is uh, in college, I was part of a network marketing company and I basically blew five grand on stupid products and damaged a couple of friendships and just really you know, wasted time and money for a bunch of years. Thankfully my grades didn't go down, but like, again, all the five grand, if I could have it back, probably would have made my life easier when I first started out and that kind of stuff. So just dumb stuff, you know, typical, typical 20 something things. Amway? No, no, Vima, actually, uh, okay. the one that okay. got sued by the FTC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, good I choice. really liked their energy drinks. They actually tasted good. It made, it made class a lot easier for me. And I was like, well, maybe I can make some money doing this. And I had a friend who was like incredibly charismatic, who's uh, still in a network marketing company, though a different one with a little bit better of a product. And, you know, that's not under a lawsuit. Um, so... <laughs> But he was he was incredibly charismatic and he was like, I think we could do this. And I was like, OK, you know, like whatever. I'm 20 years old. What do I have to lose? 
um, which is totally where you come from as an upper middle class white kid, right? You're like, oh, things go well for me. So yeah, I'll start this business. Um, but it was, you know, it was a learning experience. I will say that one of the things that I took away from that beyond, you know, the car thing, I basically just learned all the rules about large purchases and all the things you give up and opportunity costs. But with, with the network marketing company, I did learn a couple of things, which is one, like how to deal with rejection because that is most of what network marketing is, frankly, is a bunch of rejection after rejection, and it really sucks. And then um, second is just how much money I could save if I don't spend money on energy drinks, which is uh, currently my state of mind. Yeah, the follow-up to that is um, everyone on this uh, podcast knows I'm a big fan of Meb Faber, but he talks about just from an investment allocation a lot of times, and he wrote a blog article, No One Wants Your Shit. It's the same way in like that... Uh, uh, product marketing structure a lot of times a lot of people are like yeah I don't want your stuff yeah I mean I think that's hard I think the big lesson you take away from any involvement with that sort of company is if you're intelligent you realize how much more value your reputation has than what you thought it was worth like you know these days my I, I value my reputation really highly I try to only be ethical and represent you know the best parts of myself when I can um, and I, I just obviously didn't feel that way in college and I didn't lose any friends because of it, but I definitely, you know, damaged some friendships that I later had to repair. So people were tired of hearing from me, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> All right. I guess I'll go second. Um, but as a side note, I feel like a lot of, when I talk to other folks as well, like, Hey, my biggest financial mistake was like buying a car or stuff like that. I mean, I think sort of it's all relative. So I, you know, I think there's folks out there that buy vehicles because it's part of what they actually truly want. But um, I know that's like a totally separate uh, rabbit hole to go down or well, whatever. But I, just I mean, I give yourself some grace. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I don't regret it like hardly, but I, I do recognize that the car didn't bring me as much joy as I thought it would. Right. And I think for most people, that's going to be true, even though there will be some people who genuinely love their car. Right. And they get $25,000 of value out of a $25,000 car, right? And yeah. at least I didn't... Yeah, you go buy a Jeep and... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, at least I didn't oh, I go buy say, a yeah, Mercedes you... or something, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I was going to say, you know, there's folks like, oh, I'm going to, you know, buy a Tacoma or something, and they're going off-roading every weekend or whatever. Like, that's... Yeah, but um, mine is also vehicle-related, though. The one that I could try to think of that was probably the dumbest one was... So when I was probably like 19 or 20 uh i bought a motorcycle uh new uh on a credit card because that's a good idea because they had zero percent financing and the big reason <laughs> <laughs> the and the, you guys will love this the big reason i thought it was a good idea to buy a motorcycle on credit card was because you didn't have to have full comprehensive coverage on said motorcycle because it was technically just a personal loan versus like a collateralized debt wow. so <laughs> isaiah isaiah's over there like rubbing his forehead like wow um so the, I, you're, you are the only one that would think that way right <laughs> when making the purchase of a, of a vehicle and i i absolutely love you for it. <laughs> so so obviously it is not wise to give you know a very incredibly fast sport bike to like a 19 20 year old um and then have basically no coverage other than you know plpd on this thing so in the chance that i would have wrecked it, which 
you know, I just beat the odds. That wasn't, I mean, it's kind of one of those, like, you don't get in a car drunk with, and don't put a seatbelt on and get home and say that was a good idea. Like, it, you know, not that it was like this, but obviously I could have easily wrecked that bike or done something dumb and then would have still owed the balance of this credit card for, you know, until I would have paid it off. Um, so that is not good. So fortunately, uh, I eventually got smart and wanted to go to grad school and ended up selling it. And so my dad helped like pay off the rest of the credit card, like net of whatever the bike was so I could go to grad school. So that was a, that was helpful. But, um, that was a really dumb, uh, looking back on it, a really dumb idea. I could have definitely used that money somewhere else. I was in college. I could have really gotten hurt. I could have died. I could have wrecked the bike and still owed that with nothing to show for it. Well, I mean, thankfully, oh, yeah. so, we know not how good. the story ends, which is that you're still here. So that's good. <laughs> I am still here. And and my lovely wife, like she had, you know, she's she's pretty uh, lenient on a lot of things. And that's just like one thing. She's like, no motorcycles you know that she's like that's where she's drawing a hard line <laughs> she puts up with a lot of my other antics and a lot of my other harebrained ideas but like that's where she draws the line so I'm like all right fair enough those days are done dwight did we just become best friends because i had also a motorcycle <laughs> in college i got it at 20. yeah um, so my first question is what kind of a bike was it it was a 2005 Yamaha R6. Okay, I had a Jixer 600 from there Suzuki. There you go. So I had friends with a, an R6. Fastest you ever went on it? Not going to admit that. Yeah, so Colin, you'll probably know this, that what's that road, Lake Michigan Drive, goes all the way out to Lake Michigan. Yeah. yeah, so we would take some of those and some of those back roads. And yeah, we definitely had them into like the 130s, 150s, so not safe and then there's two kinds of motorcycle riders those that have wrecked and fallen off and yep. those that will so you sir are very lucky i uh, very very lucky i did not fall and this is see this is like the dumb idea like because your brain isn't fully uh developed at like 20 years old where it's like well you know if i fall off at like 140 miles an hour like you ain't coming back from that so like if you're going to go big, go, you know, go big or go home, I guess. Like, not wise. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, mom or anybody else that's listening to this. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was not smart. So uh, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, I was once going similar miles per hour as you were referring to and got passed by one of my friends. That's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, dear Lord. I think he was going 175 or 180 at the time. So <laughs> no, and the thing is, is as you know, with like a Jixer six, well, with the Jixer 600, those R6s, like they're not meant to go 30 miles an hour. Like they just, they're meant to like, I mean, we used to always kind of joke like the hundred, the 90 to 120 miles an hour was like where that thing wanted to be, which is like, which sounds nuts and it is nuts, but like that's where it wants to be. No, I mean, that's, like, that doesn't sound that crazy. That's the way it is with sports cars too. If you try to drive exactly. a sports car slow, it feels like you're having to hold it back the whole time. And then if right. you drive it at like 60 or faster, it starts to really feel like a car. Yep. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a good idea. So anyway, that's my story. I'm, I'm really lucky that, you know, I, I've, as dumb as that sounds, like I didn't do wheelies. I didn't try to do a lot of dumb stuff um, just other than going fast. Like, but yeah, I, I did not fall. Um, and fortunately some of my friends like didn't either, but yeah, it's not good. So anyway, who's up next? Well, uh, I'll, I'll go next. Um, Yours are definitely a lot cooler than mine. I think mine I would actually expect from Dwight. 
Um, so my first year out of college, I got a 1099 job selling mutual funds and other financial products. Didn't know anything about planning, didn't know anything about taxes, and didn't pay them quarterly. Mm. And uh, I did pretty darn well <laughs> my first year. And the you know tax season rolls around, and of course I didn't pay any taxes uh, throughout the whole year. And being 1099, I didn't know you had to pay. I thought you know you just paid federal taxes, and I didn't know about all this like FICA stuff. And then I found out that you had to pay not only the employer side or the employee side, but also the employer side. Ah. So, uh, yeah, I had the nice, you know, federal, let's just call it an effective, like, you know, 15, 20%. And then the 15.3% the, the for both sides of the FICA tax. Um, so that was a very, very sad day. And fortunately, I was quite frugal. Uh, and this was the first time I was ever earning real money and just uh, was piling it away in savings. So I had the money to do it, but uh, that really, really taught me my second lesson, which is the difference between uh, gross income and net income. So number one, pay your taxes. And number two, uh, there is, you know, for all those uh, wannabe startup, you know, self-employed people out there um, to net the salary of, you know, $60,000 that your employer wants to pay you you got to be making way more than that in order to net that as a, a self-employed individual. So I thought I was doing so well because my top line was huge. And, oh, man, you know, the, the dinners, the gas, just the expenses, the computer, the software, the updates, the continuing education, like, whew, that stuff adds up. I, I feel for a lot of employers out there. That's, that's my... Uh, Pay your taxes, pay your quarterlies, know the difference between gross income and net income. Yeah, I had a I had a client once who moved from W-2 to their first 1099 and they had a similar coming of age moment because they weren't a client yet and they sat down with me like just before the end of the year and I'm like, hey man, uh, I was just looking over your tax return from last year and you were W-2 last year. Did you know to pay quarterly this year? It's like, no. I'm like, your tax bill's about to be huge huge and it did hit them like that. <laughs> yeah so there's only so much you can do to reduce it right it's just real money you have to pay it exactly yeah unless you have expenses but um yeah i think that's one thing that a lot of employee people that are employees i kind of forget about of hey i'm making x you know fifty thousand dollars a year the employer is paying for part of those taxes and they're paying you know hopefully paying for benefits and all these other things so it's like what's your true true wage um, or true cost to the employer. Um, and so just something yeah. to kind of think about when people are yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go out on my own. And there's probably a good rule of thumb for that. And I can't think of it, but it's, you know, like, yeah, you're maybe you're making 20% more just on all the stuff that they're doing as far as like an overhead rate. So it's like, yeah, just kind of before you jump, if you're making 50 or 60, you probably need to be making 80 or 90 top line or something. So yep, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I was trying to like remind people like, well, now that you have the, um, you know, you have the privilege of being a business owner. Now you have the obligation that comes with that. So uh, it goes both ways, man. Well, at least you learned it young, Colin. That's right. That's right. I do pay quarterlies now. <laughs> <laughs> These are great. Um, for anyone that's listened to this podcast or knows me at all, um, this probably won't come as a surprise. But when I 
graduated high school, I said, hey, Saul, you know, kind of my parents struggled with money. I was going to start saving and putting money away. So I went down to my local um, financial advisor, which is kind of this small town door knocking type and gave him $500 because that was the minimum that I saw online and never heard from him for two years after that. And when I didn't hear back from him, I was in some uh, A-share mutual funds. I was like, well, shoot, I can go buy something and never call somebody again. So I pull it out and I think I opened a Schwab account and I went out and was like, I'm going to buy individual stocks because I'm going to do this research and I'm going to know stuff and I'm going to pick winners. I'm going to make all this money because that's what people do. The first stock I bought, um, AeroVirement. I don't even necessarily know if I pronounce it right. And that's how sad of the <laughs> amount of research that I did on it. Um, but it was cool because what they were doing was they were developing drones and like lightweight solar powered vehicles. And it was like tech forward. And there was like some article I read somewhere that told me how great this company was going to be. Um, it didn't make any money at the time. It does now. Cause I just looked it up. I hadn't looked at it in years, but I bought it in the mid twenties. So I think it was like between 27 and 28, if I recall, and it went down. So probably had like a bad quarter or some bad stuff happened down to low twenties, maybe even high teens. And I was like, Ooh, don't like this. I'm going to sell it. Um, in September of 2018, it was at $117 and it's now 55 today, but I did nothing other than go on to Yahoo finance, read a couple articles and said, I know this company, I'm going to buy it. It was the dumbest thing. <laughs> and I think there's so many people that have done similar things where they'll read an article or see something like, Oh, I'm going to go buy this stock but there's less public traded securities today than ever before. And there's more CFAs, which are the really, really smart folks that do deep dive analysis on companies. And that's never going to be Isaiah or Colin or Dwight or Ian. And so many people think that that's what we do. And I learned my lesson very quickly that buying individual stocks, not necessarily a strength of Isaiah's. So that was mine, although it took me a little while because I still bought other stocks for a while, but I do not buy individual names now, just FYI. <laughs> I, I have a funny story that's pretty similar to that, which is even more comical because when we first started this, I told you guys I couldn't think of any you know, great financial mistakes, and now they're all just coming to me here. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's I could amazing. pretty much you tap the well and it's just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, now it's exploding. Yeah, we hit oil here. Um, I did the same thing. I had a Fidelity account and I was making trades doing the same thing. I listened to Jim Cramer every night and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be like the next stock guru. And I didn't consider that the trades were, I, I mean, I needed Robinhood back then, but you know, it's like eight bucks a trade and I was trading with like a hundred dollars. So I would you know, in my little trading journal, I'll be like, all right, I bought this stock at this price. Let's say it's a hundred bucks or it's a hundred dollars and I'd buy one share for a hundred dollars. And then there'd only be, you know, eight or $92 in the account because of my trading costs. So I had to make up 8%. And then in order to get out, it was another eight bucks. So I'd have to make 16% on that stock just to break even. And then you're going to pay it, ordinary interest, ordinary tax rates on whatever you absolutely. make because it's all short term. And I, it must've taken me at least like four or 500 to 200 hour trades before I even understood what I was doing. And uh, needless to say, I did not make any money. Yeah, I did the same type of thing too. I think I wasn't quite 
yeah, it, I just didn't really register with the cost of making a trade. So funny. <laughs> well, they're free now. Good times, good times. <laughs> yeah, it's all free now. Right. That way, that way you can make bad decisions for less money. Which, uh... Maybe we should just talk about that because, and I don't know if we're like doing like a quick time out here, but free trading is uh, actually kind of an interesting topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, an interesting thing to at least touch on because it did happen very recently and it happened to everybody but Fidelity, it seems like. Fidelity's still holding strong at their five bucks a trade mark, but that's because mm-hmm. they charge less on their cash. Um, I think it's just an interesting reflection point for a lot of people on the fact that. I'm sure a lot of consumers don't realize that custodians largely haven't been making most of their money off of trades for a long time. So like when you hear free trades, you're like, how can they afford to do that? And it's like, well, you know, they're losing maybe 10% of their revenue, but 90% of it comes from all these other things in the background that you don't see, right? They're making Mm -hmm. money off your money without you knowing. Yep, exactly. Well, and I think there's a big point, too, where consumers are focusing on very specific things, and that's good and that's helpful, but it's just sort of like playing whack-a-mole a little bit. It's like, well, if you want to focus on expense ratios, which is good, uh, or trading fees, like, okay, cool, but then we'll just take it over here. You know, maybe that's reduction in interest they pay on cash, or, I mean, I think Schwab, you know, makes half their top-line revenue just on banking products, so who knew? Um so yeah, I think it'll just the ball will get shifted somewhere because people want to shine a bunch of light in one area. So I, these are not like altruistic companies here. You know, they they are there to make a profit. So um, they will uh, they will somewhere. So we'll just kind of have to see where it goes. Well, and the other thing is like so I know Schwab has guided portfolios. I'm seeing this on Twitter where it's a mandatory cash holding. They basically pay nothing on that cash. So that's a way that they can give it away for free but still make something on it. So again, back to that point, not I'm trying to single them out. There's other custodians that do stuff like that. Nothing but love for you, Schwab. Um, yeah, it's a for-profit company. They're not gonna just give you away stuff for free because they think this is really good for you know, Bob and Betty down the street. It's like, oh no, we're just trying to gather assets and then we're gonna say, hey, now we have advisors or we have people in house that they'll try to upsell you into something different. And that's always gonna be the model is they're gonna find other ways to drive revenue. But not to so. drive too hard of a point on this. Some of this stuff, I, I try to talk to folks too about what is the magnitude. So, you know, fees going down, say in a mutual fund or an ETF is good, but like if it goes down two basis points, you know, and you got $10,000 in there, like how much did you save? Like that's good, but are you gonna really go and say, okay, great, I was at Fidelity, now I'm gonna move to, to Schwab because I can save two basis points. I mean, people do that stuff, but same thing with like cash. Like, well, if you've got $5,000 in cash and you're not really earning any interest, like that sucks, but that's a lot different than if you have $500,000 in there. So just keep as little as you need to, and, you know, or whatever it is and just move on. Um, just kind of think about magnitude. So I do think some of this just becomes more of like a headline bait, um, but it, you know, trying to talk to people like, yeah, that sounds like a lot, but um, just remember you can still put $19,000 in your 401k. Your right, company. it's like, don't so don't get, let's, let's start there. Don't get tunnel visioned on the things that are exactly. so small in terms of your outcomes, right? Like the difference between yep. a six and a 7% return when really what we should be focusing on is your savings rate into that account kind of thing. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the other thing, back on the expense ratios, it's like I just met with someone the other day, and it I was a project just to talk about the investment allocation, and the allocation I suggested actually was going to be more expensive. The reason it was more expensive is because there was actual diversification in it, 
and there was utilizing some, you know, different strategies that will benefit them over the long term if they truly are a long term investor. And I think some things are, you know, worth paying for. And having that conversation was very interesting. Way too long of a conversation for this podcast format, but um, yeah, I, I think judging things just by an expense ratio is very nearsighted. Just like when people used to look at Morningstar ratings and say, "Hey, it's a five star fund." Congratulations, I mean it did well the last you know three or five years, not the next three or five. So great, you can buy that five star fund at a premium. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah but Isaiah, now they have the medals <laughs> that are going to tell you what's going forward. So you could get a five star gold or a five star silver. Yeah, and it looks really good when you uh, build out your custom model and you have all these five-star funds. I, similar to you, Colin, had that experience in a past life of building those out and saying, look at these reports, they're so beautiful. Look at that, it just goes up to the right. <laughs> Selling off of past performance. <laughs> Yikes. But it is good, it is cool to see that some of these commissions are gonna go away and um, at least it'll help um, you know, for folks trying to get in, because I think Colin, that's a really good point though. Like if you're paying $8 a trade and you only have a hundred dollars to start off with, that's a pretty big chunk of cash you know, as far as a percentage, like right off the top, that's not going to be, um, able to be invested on, you know, for you. So, um, it's helpful. Well, and I think people just don't understand, you know, the other ways they derive revenue. I mean, they'll do securities lending, they'll do other things that are able to generate revenue for them behind the scenes where so much of a bank, you go deposit your money and they're going to go find ways to put that money to work and make something on it. So it's, it's a similar idea. Those banks don't do it for free either, so. All right, do we wanna do tweet of the week before we close out for today? Random number generator, beep, boop, beep, boop. Oh, Colin, it's you. Yeah. Wow, I wasn't expecting this. Um, I had a great uh, tweet here from, uh, it was actually just, I saw it from a retweet from uh, our, our uh, Isaiah's favorite blogger, Josh Brown. <laughs> Um, but it was an article written by Morgan Hazel, who actually is probably one of your favorites, um, with the Collaborative Fund. And that he is just true. talked about a, uh, it, it was a really cool, just forward looking article. And the title is Three Big Things The Most Important Forces Shaping the World. And he just talked about um, how, just how the, the irony of studying history is that we know where the story ends, but we have no idea where it began. So I'll just read like the first paragraph here and it's a, just a great uh, example. What caused the financial crisis? Well, in order to understand that, you need to understand the mortgage market. But what shaped the mortgage market? Well, in order to understand that, you need to understand the, the 30 year decline in interest rates that preceded it. In order to understand interest rates, you should probably understand what happened in the 70s with incredible inflation. In order to understand inflation, you should probably understand monetary system and uh, fiscal policy and some of the hangover effect from the Vietnam War. What caused the Vietnam War? Well, you probably need to understand and so on and so forth. So it's just a really interesting thing, how uh, a way to think that how things are so tied together and what are major forces moving forward. And his three major forces were uh, number one, demographic shift uh, number two the um, change in uh, any or the wealth inequality that uh, we are experiencing and how the rich keep getting richer uh, and, and poor are either staying stagnant or even declining and also number three the information uh, that is now 
basically uh, the, the information world that we're living in and how you can access information from virtually anywhere. And it's really interesting. The article obviously goes into much more detail about all this stuff, but uh, love uh, his take on demographic shift, wealth inequality, and the access to information. Um, I can kind of touch on each of those, but wondering what uh, your guys' thoughts are, those three big things. And I mean, demographic shift, he's just talking about like for the first time, we're actually having the same amount of people in virtually every 10 decade period. So we now have like the same amount of old people as young people, where a lot of uh, other countries are uh, experiencing um, other other types of uh, other types of shifts and we're like maybe a developed country will have a bunch of bunch of young people and hardly any old people um, or vice versa and uh, the wealth inequality just talking about how people that are you know for the first time are be, you know becoming you know multi multi billionaires and it's just incredible to see how just the f- just a few people are winning out you know 10x than what everyone else used to do in the past and how you know the average CEO pay has gone from like 30 times their average employee to like 250 times the average employee Um, and then also access to information just uh, how we're in this society where we can communicate and solve problems and you know you can be basically working with someone on the other side of the world uh, at any time and how, how that could change uh, education systems as we know it. But a lot to unpack there. The article is fantastic, and, and Morgan's a, a beautiful writer. I mean, I'll say that I think one of the things that he misses, unless he includes this in, under the information category, is um, how technology is going to change what economics are even like over the next 30 years. So that could be considered informational difference, but... I just see it as, you know, 40 or 50% of today's modern jobs are going to end up automated over the next 50 to 100 years. So, like, it's going to become a a very different age where we need to find other ways to stay relevant, not just economically, but also from a purpose perspective, because so many people's purpose is wrapped up in what they do for a living, right? I am this is how we describe what we do. And I think that will need to change in a big way. But I also agree with his three other things, which are all going to be significant forces. We have a lot more people living longer than we used to. Um, we have a lot of, we have a dramatic wealth gap that people don't stop talking about. It's public knowledge. And then, you know, obviously you can Google anything. So I like all of his points. I just don't think they're incredibly uh incredibly comprehensive i would say from the standpoint of the access to information it's going from and let's even take the the tilt towards financial advisor role in kind of the planning perspective of bringing all this information where a lot of people can access it it's asking the right questions to help someone make decisions more so than providing all this you know information that could never be found or organized anywhere else there's so many wonderful free resources out there where I think so much of our role and responsibility now is to just decide the right questions to help people discover the answers that they maybe already have or want to have. Who's the guy running for president? Like, 
Zang or something Andrew like that. Andrew Yang Yang Gang, baby. Yang, yeah, that's right, exactly. So, like that whole idea. But, yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting tie-in to what we were talking about in our last episode about, hey, your parents' financial advice is, is wrong, sort of, and just kind of saying, hey, look, there's big things that are happening um, from a world global perspective and even within the United States. Um, we, we Three of us sat through XY last couple weeks ago, a few weeks back, and you know, Kits is kind of talking about the this sort of this awkward middle, like you, it's either small or big, and anything in the middle kind of gets um, uh, any you know anything else is anything in the middle can is has kind of a tough spot. Like you're either Amazon, uh, for example, or you're uh, a boutique, um, you know, uh, retailer down the street. Um, but if you're something in the middle, you're you know look at Sears having a really hard go at it right now. A lot of these these other retail chains, so. It's kind of interesting. I, I do think like, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and things just moving. So every, I mean, it's kind of a forever story though. Everything's always changing. Everything moves fast, blah, blah. Um, but probably with the way computers and technology and, and the internet and everything probably makes, does make this a little bit faster than, than what we used to kind of think about some of this, like, oh, well the printing press happened and then these things happened. It's like, yeah, that was like 200 year time period that they talked about these changes and this stuff is happening in, in 10 years. So it's huge, huge shifts. Yeah. Um, but oh, I was just going to say, like, yeah, I agree with Isaiah on the access to information. There's just so much of it out there. And I, when I look at folks that are probably in their 40s and 50s at Gen X, that information was just starting to come online. So it was still somewhat easy to get information and make sense of it. And now it's just like you can get whatever answer you want for whatever question you want based on your particular perspective. And so the question is, is more like, OK, what's the best answer for you? And I do think it's gonna. There's much more value on in terms of folks helping you, you know, spend less time going through every single piece of information that you could ever find on the internet, and also making a good uh, a good decision because you know everything you read on the internet is is right, right? Like everything's everything's true. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing about how a lot of service profession roles are starting to change is that it's not about having the answers anymore. It's about knowing what questions mm-hmm. to ask which I've heard talked about in various articles um, over the last six months. But the, the interesting thing is that like, I can have a client sit down with me who's read tons of financial articles, tons of this, tons of that, but they don't really know how it all fits together. And that's a matter of knowing what questions to ask yourself, right? It's a matter of knowing what goals you have and all those kinds of things. And those are all questions that need answers, not answers that need questions. So it's a, it's a little bit different. Um, the because it's all about filtering the information now, not about obtaining it. The information's out there; it's free. You just have to know what the filters to apply are. Which I think is awesome because now, if you you know before at some period it was just really impossible to even find that information or even get it, and now it's there. So if you're just trying to start out and just trying to even think of something, you can do it. I mean, as examples I've used before is, you know, stuff around the house. Like, okay, well, I can get a YouTube video on how to do this thing um, and to kind of understand the scope of the project, but I'm probably not going to replace my roof myself uh, or whatever it is. Like, so, you know, and even some of the small things was like, yeah, I'm just going to call an electrician and have him come in and it'll take him 30 minutes to do it and we'll be done versus me like probably ending up on the floor in cardiac arrest because I touched the wrong wire. So, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of that. For example, I had another uh, somebody this past week asked me, "Hey, should I use traditional or should I use Roth?" And it's, of course, the answer is it depends. And what is your specific situation? And walking through that whole piece 
and how it applied to them is much more valuable than you know 2,000 articles you could find very quickly on which we which you should do like I don't know it depends on your situation and so we're able to answer that I think my overall takeaway from the whole th- from just that subject is just the uh, is a pretty interesting quote that Morgan said was on the wealth inequality side he said never underestimate the power of a unified group of powerless people and that's that's kind of a scary uh quote you know trying to like a uh, reform come in here but uh i i don't think it necessarily has to be so dreary and so bad um you know i think technology has just made our lives so much better and i mean he even talked about too how um you know back in just a hundred years ago in the early 1900s 28 percent of you know babies would would die during the process of childbirth or or get a disease when they're you know, young and uh, unable to battle off just simple diseases where now that is less than 1% of, you know, it's almost a half percent. So, you know, there's so many positive things that technology and information are bringing our lives, but at the same time, we have to learn how to cope with it when it starts to replace things that we used to do. So, you know, it's like, all right, we don't really want people to have to just crunch numbers anymore. We have Excel or different automations for that. What can we find those people to do? And yes, there's going to be some growing pains, but overall, as a society, we're getting better. Um, and it will be really, really interesting to see politics change and, you know, people already talking about, you know, the freedom dividend or, you know, some type of guaranteed income from uh, and- our friend Andrew Yang. Uh you know, it, right now it seems like a totally radical thought. And in the future, it might be like, yeah, I can't believe those people weren't all about it. You know, who knows? But I think that we're all, you know, human society has been able to last this long and we're going to continue to last and continue to change and alternate and thrive. Again, that's not to say things might not get a little bit uh, bumpy, but that's okay. I think uh, we can all be positive and look forward to a bright future i think that's a great place to end awesome well hey thank you all for listening and we will catch you next week thanks so much for listening we hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something for all inquiries and questions please email financialforesight at gmail.com if you're on twitter feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about if you're enjoying the show please subscribe on apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review we'd love to hear from you and thank you so much for listening we'll be talking again soon